The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area. People who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn. and his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. I'm Steve Dunn. We are profiling winners of the 40 Over 40 Award, and I am joined today by Sean Flynn, Chief Communications Officer for Holy Angels. Welcome, Sean. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Well, we're pleased to have you. Over the course of your career, Sean, you've been a storyteller throughout, and sometimes you're telling stories about others in your capacity as a news reporter. Sometimes you're telling stories for others in your capacity as a a communications professional. And then at other times, you've been telling your own story and the story of your family. I'd like to talk to you about all of those forms of storytelling, but begin with the question, what is it that the common thread that runs through all stories that makes them compelling? Oh, that's a great question. So yes, I would, it doesn't matter what job title I ever hold, I will always be a storyteller. And I think that's critical for whatever it is that you're trying to do, whether you're trying to operate a business, trying to work on your own personal brand. It, storytelling is the key to a community. It's the key component to who we are. Everything we do in life is about the story. And I think the biggest thing that, and the most compelling part of a story is finding that little niche that makes it unique or something that unifies. Back in my day in the news business, I used to tell reporters, hey, when you're looking for a story idea, there's a couple things you want to look for, that, that most unique or story or something that unifies us. And every single time my story went national on CNN, it was always something about some weird thing that happened, a Bigfoot sighting in Oregon, a shark attack, a llama on the loose in California, four kittens sent in a box, <laughs> shipped from Atlanta to Charlotte. Those are the stories that people are like, huh? And so whenever you're trying to find that story to tell that that works, that people want to hear about, that resonate with people, is to find those little pieces of nuggets that, that can really pull in their emotions and keep people connected. Storytelling really is central to how we communicate as people. I worked for a long time as a lawyer, and when young lawyers start out, we all think that the the most important thing is sort of what the law is, what the rules are, and how we fit that peg through the hole. And I think after a certain point, when you get to be over 40 probably, people tend to figure out that the story is the most important thing, and that if you can tell a story that relates to people that jives with their own experience, that that's how people evaluate things. Is that your experience as well? Absolutely. And if you you just think about, you know, even 100, 150 years ago, before we had TV, radio, these little computers in our hands and things like that, how did we entertain ourselves? We, We basically circled around a fire and we told stories of times past. And so I think that's one of the most important things. I remember a few years ago, I used to be an adjunct professor over at Queens University. And 
I just taught, taught a store a class on how to tell stories. And we actually one night went out and I there was a fire pit on campus and we had all the students and that was their assignment is to try and tell a captivating story. And I think it's a lost art. I think a lot of times we forget the importance of of not only finding that story that's interesting, but how to tell it in a compelling way. Well, you had a personal experience that formed the basis of a more personal story, maybe, than you're used to telling, involving a surprising diagnosis of your son, Liam. Yeah. So back in 2018, so my Liam, who was six years old at the time, everything was perfectly fine, just normal playing soccer, a little fun kid. So my wife and I came home from seeing Hamilton one night here in Charlotte, and it was awesome. Speaking of sport storytelling there, but he came home and, and he complained about having a stomach ache and a backache. And, you know, we gave him some medicine, went to bed the next day, kept complaining about, it. we took him to the doctors a few times and they were like, Oh, it's, it's nothing serious, but we noticed that things weren't right. Um, we got a, a couple of x-rays that didn't show anything by day number five, Liam started struggling with walking. He was clumsy and that's not him. He's a very coordinated child at six years old. So basically by day nine of this uh, journey, we'd been to the doctor four times. I ended up having to carry Liam into the hospital at Novant Health, Hemby Children's Hospital. And it was a few hours later that they told us that it appears that Liam had cancer. And it was an extremely aggressive form of cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma per kits, which is very aggressive, very rare. Not many kids get this. And it, it, it changed the whole trajectory of our lives. I mean, when you're faced with a diagnosis like that, whether it's your own or a child's, it, it really makes you think a lot about life. So, you know, we learned a lot about, I didn't know anything really much about cancer and treatment and the protocol. Our oncologist at the St. Jude Clinic over there, she said it's actually a very good form of cancer, which just, you know, confuses you a little bit. Um, Treatable, is that what they mean? Yeah, well, I think it's because since it is such an aggressive form of cancer, apparently the chemotherapy targets the most aggressive cells first. So since it was so aggressive that it really works well. She also said that, and, and this is this is a quote, she's just like, it, it's the treatment protocol is six months. After that, everything should be good. And I'm not going to lie, the next six months are, forgive me, going to suck. And it did. It was rough. We spent more than 70 nights in the hospital. Liam required more than, it was 71 rounds of chemotherapy, two surgeries, 12 blood products, uh, transfusions. And it wasn't fun. Now, even during that time, we made it as fun as possible. There was a lot of moments that we laughed a lot. And I think that was one of the best medicine that we had during that time is to try and make some memories. And I have some great memories. Don't worry. I also have a lot of trauma from that time. That was a very difficult time. But it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a time I'll always remember, obviously. But I will also say that the community is fantastic. Our community of supporters, whether it was church, school, friends, they surrounded us with love and and everything that we really needed at that at that time. Well, and I, before we go any further, because I always do like to say that that we're actually coming up on uh, four years of Liam's No More Chemo Day, and he's doing great. He's regained more than regained all of his weight, and he's he's doing very well. He's just a happy-go-lucky fifth grade kid, just a normal kid. Uh, the thing that we all hope for our own kids. Just, yeah. Just normal and happy, right? Just normal, happy, being goofy, running around with his friends. Well, your life turns upside down in a moment. You're confronted in an instant with thoughts about mortality and the, the life that you imagine for yourself suddenly appears like it's not going to go the way that you planned it out. 
And yet at that same time, you're, you're immersed in this whole world of doctors and hospitals and the support systems that exist for the families and the patients of folks who are going through similar things. At the same time, you are drawing upon your long professional experience as a storyteller with deep experience in television news, and you turn your attention and, and make it a project to tell your son's story. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I was a TV news reporter for 24 years. I, I like to say I'm currently in recovery uh, because TV news is a hard business. It, you're, you're spending, you know, hurry up and wait is kind of the mantra of, of the day. You, you cover a lot of really cool things. I got to go to Super Bowl 38 and, you know, stand on the field during, you know, the whole uh, Janet Jackson wardrobe issue. Oh, you were there in person. Huh? I was there in person. Didn't have a, a, a clear view. You didn't have a good view. No. The, the rest of us saw it very clearly <laughs> over and over again. And, you know, I've, I've met and interviewed nearly every presidential candidate for the, you know, for 20 some odd years. You know, the, the opportunities I got were excellent. But at the same time, you, you end up covering a lot of really challenging things. And, you know, at that time, even before Liam got sick, I was starting to evaluate my, my time in news because... I, I just don't know if I could handle any more negative news regarding children. There's definitely a few events that happened in the years beforehand that were really difficult for me personally. I used to have a great wall where I could have my, you know, my news side go home and I was fine. But that wall was kind of coming down. And so it, it, at the when Liam got sick, basically they said one of you is going to need to leave your job. And so it was basically time for me to put a retire as a, as a news reporter. And so I, I did. I ended up starting to document our journey. And I say our journey because whenever anyone, child or adult, is diagnosed with something as severe as cancer, it's not just that person's journey. It's the entire family's journey. It's the friend network journey because everyone's going through it. Yes, the patient is has it hands down worse. And it's I feel horrible that Liam had to go through that. But it is something that everyone has to go through. So I did start to document that. I did realize there were so many books written about pediatric cancer, but there was very few written by dads or men. E even the doctors who write about it were all women. And so the resources specifically for men were very limited. There's groups called Momcology, which support moms going through this, but there's really no dadcology types of groups. And men and women obviously handle things dramatically different in situations like that. So, you know, one of the things I did is I, I reached out to other dads and, and we did some things and, you know, just tried to be there for each other and support each other. But it all goes back to, to documenting what we went through and sharing that story. And I'm about 75% done writing a book on it. Hey. And, and we'll see. I would like to get it done. I just, want it to be, I just want other people who end up having to go through that experience to, to know that they have support. What's the focus of the book? Is it, is it a dad's journey or is it just the, the, gener the journey generally of having a, a child diagnosed? It, it's both. And the reason why I say that is, is, is it's just a different point of view coming from a dad. Because Do you have a working title? Not, not for disclosure. You want to, you don't want to break news on the Charlotte Ledger podcast. Uh, the working title is "We've Got This." We've and got this. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful title. Let's all keep our eye out for Sean Flynn's "We've Got This." <laughs> when the time comes, seventy. It sounds like you're twenty five percent left to go. Well, we'll 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 hope we get there one day. It would be a dream of mine to get that out there. And and again, the book is actually filled with a lot of humorous moments like the time I almost got arrested in the hospital canteen. You're the, just going to leave it there? 
You know, I wasn't news. I was really good at teasing. So that'll be the next segment. No, just kidding. I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna. Well, let me venture a guess. Uh, you were at the end of your rope, exasperated, frustrated, and perhaps didn't have your very best day. Yeah, uh, all of those things. Yes, it was one of those ones where uh, my son. You know, whenever you wanted to eat anything, you obviously wanted to put get it immediately. And so uh, he wanted Bojangles and the biscuits and everything else like that. But they, it was a tough day at Bojangles. And they didn't put the jam in the basket. And so we get back there. And all Liam wanted was jam for his biscuits. So I go down there asking for jam. And they just were not going to give me any jam. And I might have slammed my hand down a little bit harder on the metal thing, which was connected to a whole bunch of plates. And it kind of... Anyway... Long, not, not your proudest moment necessarily. Long, but. long story short, within 30 seconds, I had two very large security men surrounding me. <laughs> but the the moral of the story is I did get the jam. <laughs> well, you got the jam. And this is one of the things that, that you go through as a human being when you're thrust into a situation that is new and uncomfortable and frightening. You don't always act the way that you wish that you would. And I think... Other human beings are sympathetic to that and understanding of that. And storytelling is one of the ways that we communicate about those things and understand those things. And you've drawn inspiration from your son's journey and now are a great supporter of Claire's Army. This is an organization that exists to support the patients and the families of people who are in, in similar situations. And what, what kind of work do you do with Claire's Army and what kind of work is Claire's Army doing for people? Well, Claire's Army is this remarkable organization that provides immediate on-the-ground assistance for pediatric cancer patients and their families at Novant, Novant Health's Hemby Children's Hospital and also at Levine Children's Hospital. So upon diagnosis, they provide a care, Claire's care package with all these essentials that you don't think you really need when you're going to a, a hospital, but you actually do. So it's it's gas cards, it's, it's towels, it's notepads, so you can write down all the information that you're getting, you know, from the hospital, from the doctors. I mean, you're, you're basically drinking from a fire hose. So if you don't write it down, you're not going to remember all this stuff. But on top of that, they, they provide some financial assistance for those families who may need it. You know, obviously, if you're not working, you're not able to pay a lot of bills. So they do support with that. But for us, one of the most impactful things was four times a week, they were providing us dinner from a local restaurant. They said, here's the menu, order us what you want, the whole family, not just the, the patient, and we will bring it to you door to door. And so we actually said, it's okay, we're fine. We don't need that. And they're like, that's not the, that's not the point. The point is, this is going to be done for you and just place your order. And I will tell you that looking back, that was the most impactful thing that anybody or any group ever did for us because we as a family were able to come together at the dinner time, at the dinner time around Liam's hospital bed. We were able to eat some really good food. We were able to laugh. We were able to joke. And it's those, some of those moments are the ones that are fond memories of that time. So, yeah, my, my wife's actually on their board of directors and we attend their gala and support them in whatever ways we can, because it is I, I can't even it's such immediate impact. And it's 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 just knowing that you have this army behind you in this battle, in this journey that is so impactful for us. Well, it's a, it's the sort of thing that only a family can understand and that someone who's been through it can relate in a way that no one else can. And I imagine when you're in a hospital for a long time, you're, you you got more than plenty people who are good at the managing cancer part of the job, but maybe there's less of a competency and less of a focus on the helping 
a family in need, but equally important part of the job. Yes, absolutely. And and if I can add, if you ever have a family or a friend who's going through something like this, and again, I appreciate everybody so much who was there to help us, but the question, what can I do for you is not helpful because you don't know what you need for yourself at that point. So when all these people start asking, what can we do? What can we do? Well, you even, don't know what the answer is. if you suggest is. a specific thing, right. people are going to react the way you did, which is to say, nah, I don't need it. I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm capable of ordering takeout for myself, right? Right. It's, there, there is a role for just taking that decision-making off of the plate of the person in need. Absolutely. It's so hard to make decisions when you're being faced with so many important decisions. So I guess if I could offer something, you know, don't ask, just do. Now, don't go overboard and, and you know, immerse yourself in it. But little things here and there. I, I remember some people who just showed up, dropped off something and left and they were there. You good? All right. And those were some of the most impactful things for me. The other thing I would point out is that the director of Claire's Army, her mother, Emily Ratliff, is also a 40 over 40 winner. Oh, well. So uh, you can hear more about that organization from her. Listen, it's it's an illustrious group. If there's one thing I've learned in doing these conversations, it's a it's an impressive set of people. And so I'm pleased to hear that. You're also involved with One Blood. This is an organization that gets out in the community to to help folks, to make it easy to donate blood. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So again, when Lee went through treatment, he required eight blood transfusions, uh, whole blood, and then four platelet transfusions. And a lot of people, if you don't know the whole thing about blood and why cancer patients need blood, it's just your basically most of your levels get down to a certain point where medicine doesn't help. Getting these blood transfusions is the best medicine. And I can't even tell you how many times Within hours of Liam getting a blood transfusion, his color returned to his face. His numbers just skyrocketed. We were able to get out of the hospital significantly faster because of these transfusions. So blood donation is so critically important. While we were going through this, it, it was funny. This turned out to be the hardest thing. But I'm like, I would like to donate blood here in the hospital with my son. Can I do that? And nobody would. And so eventually, some, one of the marketing people I worked with in my previous life as a news reporter, I called her up and she's like, sure, we'll do a blood drive in your hospital room. And so they did. They brought the whole thing up to Liam's hospital room. And I sat there while he was getting treatment. I was donating blood. And that was very impactful for me. So fast forward a couple of years, I you know was doing a LinkedIn training course. And I found out that I was a, quote, a micro-influencer. I feel very official now on Twitter and LinkedIn. Someday, maybe you can be a macro influencer. Ooh, maybe. Uh, Play your cards right. big. Listen, when the book comes out, you're gonna, it's going to become your job. <laughs> if you're going to pursue this thing, you're going to have to work it, right? All right. Well, you know, the goal is set now. So anyway, I wanted to try and, and do something to just test out this whole thing. So I came up with the Donate Blood Two Times in 2020 campaign. And within that January of 2020, pre-COVID, it actually went somewhat viral. We had hundreds of people from around the world who started using the hashtag and started donating blood. And that was the goal. So I was in March, I was there donating for the second time in 2020. And that's right when coronavirus started becoming a thing. And so that marketing person was in there talking to me and she's like, yeah, you, you have no idea. We've just had almost every business and school cancel their blood drive for the next month. And she's just like, we're going to have to, you know, put an ice cream truck music thing on the bus and go door to door, neighborhood to neighborhood. And she was joking. I said, can we do that? And she's just like, what do you mean? I'm like, can you go into the neighborhoods and do this? And she's like, 
Well, yeah, we got the buses. How many times is a great idea spurred by someone thinking that they're kidding? Yeah. Well, I'd like to say I'm a wealth of bad ideas that eventually become good ones when other people help. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that then we started doing these neighborhood drives, and they were critically important for keeping the blood supply at a minimal level. But then we wanted to make a bigger impact, and that's in the September of 2020. Uh, September is Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. And so I reached out to One Blood in July of that year. Mind you, they, they tried to do these organize these drives months ahead of time. And I'm like, I got this really bad idea. What if we were able to get 30 blood drives in 30 days for Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month? And hopefully we could collect about 300 units of blood. And they're like, that sounds great. Let's do that. So I reached out to all the people in the pediatric cancer community. And it was the it was an absolute pyramid scheme of blood donation because I found a few organizers and they found other organizers and then they each got blood donors to their to the truck. So that first year we ended up with 42 blood drives and collected 952 units of blood, which was way beyond anybody's imagination or expectation. And also as a side bonus for every donation, one blood donated $10 to the Isabel Santos Foundation, which is trying to help find cures for rare pediatric cancers. So in three years now, we've collected more than 2,500 units of blood. $25,000 has gone to Isabel Santos Foundation. And it's just a, a, that is something that's really important to me to pay it forward for those people who took the time to roll up their sleeve and donate blood that saved my son's life. In addition to all the volunteer work that you do, you've had a career change. After many years in television news, you are now the chief communications officer for Holy Angels, which provides residential care for people with intellectual developmental disabilities. And the residents at Holy Angels include young children all the way up to senior citizens. And I wonder, as you're telling the story of Holy Angels, or if you're telling their story, how much do you draw on the successes and the accomplishments and the signs of an enriching life that these residents are able to have really against all odds? Oh, you, you, you just hit the nail on the head there talking about these remarkable residents. So again, just real quickly, let me explain the history of Holy Angels just for those listeners who, who don't know. It's been around for 68 years. And it started with a young baby, a mother who had this child who would later be known as Maria, who the doctor said she wouldn't live past three months. And so the mom went to the Sisters of Mercy convent in Belmont and said, can you help? Eventually, they took the they, they did take the child in. And Maria lived for 54 years, and she inspired this mission of mercy. And we currently have 85 residents over there. Youngest is three. The oldest is about to turn 81 years old, and they are remarkable residents. Most of them require 24-7 care 365. They require assistance with eating, changing, everything that you can imagine. Most of them, they can't walk, so they're in their wheelchairs. And But what you see over there is so much love. The residents give so much love to the staff over there and the staff who are working their tails off have such love for the residents. It is truly a remarkable family. And they have this thing over there called Mercy Moments. And Mercy Moments was coined a phrase coined by Dennis Kuhn, who is well known in these parts. And it's basically where heaven and earth intersect, where the impossible becomes possible. And I've seen so many of those Mercy Moments over there. That oldest resident that, you're, that we've talked about, that 80-year-old, he is a savant. So if he hears a song one time, he can play it on the piano. He he knows your if you tell him what day your birthday, he'll tell you what day of the week it was and what the weather was like. He it's just there. 
he's played the piano at the White House for George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush. And he is, I just, it, the, the emotions I get when I talk about some of these residents is phenomenal. My first year there, I actually had Butch play Silent Night on the piano. And this young lady, she was in sixth grade here, and she had been playing the young Elsa on Frozen on Broadway. And obviously that got canceled because of COVID, but she was here. So I had her in the background singing Silent Night and Butch playing it on the piano. And it just created this magical moment. But there's so many of those over there. And my, I'm so lucky and thrilled to be able to tell the story of these residents and what they are capable of doing. Now, Holy Angels is, is not just a residential facility. They, they want to provide meaningful work opportunities for some of their residents who are a little bit higher functioning. And so they've opened up two cafes, Cherub's Cafe in downtown Belmont and Spruce Goose Station in McAdamville, a, a cotton candy store, which is an old, old school, old time candy store, and then an art gallery called Bliss Gallery, where the residents and guest artists can show off their works. It's, it's truly a phenomenal place. Well, you've been in Charlotte now since 2003, about 20 years. And 20 years. You came here for a reporting gig, right? This is back in, back in the news days. What have you seen over 20 years in Charlotte? What, what, what is Charlotte like now compared to then? Well, it's, 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 it is interesting that I've been here for 20 years because I was what you would call a job gypsy. Pretty much every two years, I've moved jobs and cities. So I moved here from California. So it was, it was quite the difference. I was raised in Atlanta, so I'm, I'm familiar with the South. But I came to Charlotte, and I remember driving cross-country. I checked in at a hotel and immediately met with a realtor and tried finding a place. And I ended up living in Uptown Charlotte because it was up and coming at the time. Nobody really wanted to live you in Uptown. You moved into Uptown Charlotte in 2003? I did. Wow. I You're was one of those. pioneer. It was, I moved over to First Ward where these condos had just been built. Apparently there was this guy who used to sit on t at the top of the Bank of America Tower. He didn't like to see all the blight in First Ward, so he worked with everybody around there to redevelop it. That, that guy did a bunch of stuff, that, I, that, I understand. Yeah, he, that Hugh McCall, you know, he's, <laughs> done a, he's done a thing or two. But it's been, tr it's, this whole area has transformed. I remember doing a story back in 2007 called, and it was a, like a type of year in review or a year pre preview. And I said, oh, this is the year of the crane because there's 22 cranes in uptown Charlotte, all building office buildings. Now it's, what's interesting is I think the cranes are back right now, but there are building apartment complexes no longer building the office space because yeah, obviously they're that's spread out a little bit too, right? They're, right. they're a little bit further outside of the, the, 277. Yeah. Well, I, I, I worked in South End up until 2018. And a lot of times my lunch break was me walking around a couple blocks in, in, in that South End area. And I drove by there just this past week and I don't even recognize the place. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. A lot, a lot of the places that have been construction sites for years are actually starting to get finished. <laughs> yes. And so you could drive around now and see, like, oh, this is what it was supposed to be all along. I, well, I'm sitting here going, driving around. I'm like, when did this building even start? <laughs> and I'm like, where were all these restaurants when I, and thankfully, you know, I, you know, I look back at this, I'm like, thankfully there weren't this many breweries when I was young and single. Well, you more so than most have had the experience of profound change in your life, personally and professionally through your son's diagnosis, your choice to leave television news and to pursue what I think it's fair to say is a more fulfilling career path. As you look back, what would you say to your younger self as, as someone who's over 40, younger Sean, under 40, not knowing what life has in store? 
Well, perception is key. And just the way we perceive our lives, the things that are, are happening, quote, and to us, you know, I think I, you know, when you're younger, everything that happens to you, you think is the biggest thing ever. And you don't have that perspective of, you know what, that person cutting me off, I'm, I, there's no reason for me to really take that as a, as a huge thing. Now, I will say every afternoon when I'm driving home and everybody cuts over at the last second on the Brookshire Boulevard from 85, that's a bit annoying. But nowadays, it's and after everything that we've been through, it doesn't bother me as much. It's, I try not to sweat the small things nearly as much. Now, I will say, you know, when Liam w- was going through treatment, we really just didn't care about anything. <laughs> And, and it has crept back in where, you know, some of these little things started annoying us. But I think the biggest thing is just understand that, you know, not everybody is out to get you. <laughs> Feels like it sometimes, but not everybody is. Try to enjoy the little things. Try to enjoy that, you know, if, if it's a great afternoon at 70 degrees and you can just sit outside and, and enjoy a cup of coffee or, or beer or whatever it is, just just really embrace those things because you know you don't know what tomorrow holds so i have a new appreciation for life and i would tell my younger self to to have have a lot more fun well that's a great place to leave it sean thank you so much for spending time with me today on the charlotte ledger podcast thank you so much it was fun being here that's it for today the charlotte ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay banks you can find out more about the charlotte ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at ledger40over40.com. Queen City Podcast Network.com.